We're going to read through the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 1 to 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in your prayers. We will remember before our God and Father your work you produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitator of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So please keep the passage open. And uh, as Ros prayed for us, isn't it great that we depend on the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to be the one who brings conviction? What are the best three words you can hear? The best three words in the world. Maybe if you picture you're at the end of a busy day, you're just getting into bed, and it's maybe it's no more jobs. What in this exam period, whether it's you're doing year 10 mocks or finals for uni, you hear those superb words, no more exams. What about congratulations you've passed? Mortgage is approved. When you're out with friends and someone says, it's on me. How about, I love you? Probably they still have the most powerful weight, don't they? Whether it's a parent to a child, wife and husband declaring love, boyfriend, girlfriend, best friends who have been through thick and thin together. Knowing and experiencing the love of another person is tremendous, isn't it? It's a powerful gift. And as Reba prayed, she was praying about mental health. I think it's something we wrestle with, isn't it? Even as believers. But this week, it's Mental Health Awareness Week, starting tomorrow. And in the context of that, the, th the theme they're looking at is loneliness. Well, long-term feelings of loneliness have been shown to show higher rates of mortality, of poorer physical health uh, and outcomes. There was a study, a uh, well-known study from Harvard, which tracked, um, since 1938, tracked 268 Harvard undergraduates. So these are people at the top of their game with lots of opportunity. And it tracked their children as well to explore what makes us who we are, from physical and psychological traits to social life to IQ. How do we flourish? And it found that the warmth of our relationships throughout life had the greatest impact on life had the greatest impact on life satisfaction and health. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. 
That study totally correlates with God's plan for human flourishing. We were meant to live in community. We were created for community with him and with each other. So knowing that you were loved and wanted by God of the universe, to hear those words, I love you from the God of the universe, is in a class all of its own, isn't it? It's unique. And this is a life-changing gift that Paul is both thankful for and certain of in the lives of the Thessalonians, and likewise it's something that we today here in Manchester can be thankful for and certain of right here in chapter 1 of Thessalonians. So as we go through this passage that Rod uh, superbly read out for us, let's um, start by just looking at verses 4 to 6. And uh, I'm thankful to Dave Onak. Not only was he playing superbly on the keys today, but he also helped with refining these headings. So these headings come courtesy of Dave Onak. God's loving initiative. Let's look at verses 4 to 6. In chapter 1 here of the letter, Paul has... In fact, this, this whole verses 1 to 10 in, in the original is just one long sentence. And it's dominated, you can see, by Paul's thankfulness to God for this Greek church. This church was a church, as we saw last week, that was planted on one of Paul's shortest mission trips, probably a, no longer than a month. Um, we saw it had a positive start in Acts 17, but then things went pear-shaped. Jews and Greeks had come to faith, but that created huge tension. The gospel turned this cosmopolitan city upside down, and there was a riot, which meant Paul had to leave quickly. But now in Corinth, probably a year later, Timothy, his companion, has brought Paul good news about the Thessalonian church. And if Paul's gratitude to God for the signs of their true conversion is the emotional tone of this letter in this chapter, then verse 4 of chapter 1 is the root cause of his thankfulness. It's the driving focus of this chapter. What does it say there in verse 4? Have a look. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Loved by God. Chosen. Paul's confidence is that these Christians are the real deal. They're part of God's eternal plan of salvation. Why? Why does he have that? Well, as we saw last week in verse 3, he co- that 4 connects back to verse 3. He talks of their, their real faith, love, and hope. These true believers are exhibiting a life that's been transformed by God. Real faith that works, real love that labors, real hope that endures. But then in verse 5, Paul knows God has chosen them because, again, what do we read there? Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You see, the Thessalonians had put their their full trust in Christ's saving message when Paul and his team preached to them. That's God's loving election at work. He uses the means of the gospel message of people speaking and sharing it to work out his plan of bringing more people by his grace into his family. What Paul saw and experienced is totally in step with Jesus' own words. Jesus said that all those people the Father has given him will certainly come to him and will never be cast out. Can you see the rock-solid security? All those given to him will come to him and will never be cast away. John 6, 37. And then just a few chapters later in John's Gospel, when Jesus describes himself as the shepherd, he makes the same point about calling people to himself. He says, the sheep 
Listen to his, Jesus' voice. He, the shepherd, calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. John 10, verse 3. Jesus describing his eternal work there. Calling and leading people out by name. Jesus knows the name of his people, individuals. We hear him call us through the gospel and we respond by following him. Jesus continues, I'm the good shepherd, I know my sheep, my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I.e., what he was saying there is not Jewish, sheep beyond the Jewish people, the Gentiles, who are going to come in. Jesus continues, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Can you see the defining mark of Jesus' chosen people is hearing his voice and listening? The defining mark is hearing his voice and listening. And listening implies obeying and following. And did you notice it's not a distant Facebook friend type thing. My sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. (laughs) Just think about the depth of that relationship. We're drawn into, brought into none other than the eternal trinity. The depth of knowledge is comprehensive, is exhaustive. That God knows us that deeply. And that we will know and enjoy God, the Father, Son and Spirit, fully. It's mind-blowing. This is what's at root here. God's love, initiative his loving initiative, his loving choice. And next, Paul knows that the Thessalonians have been chosen by God because the gospel came to them, he says in verse 5, in power and in the Holy Spirit. Well, what, what does he mean there? What's going on? Interestingly, there's no mention of Paul doing miracles in Thessalonia. When when he goes there, we're not told that there's anything um, extraordinarily supernatural as one might imagine. No healings. No resurrections or risings, no, um, you know, breakouts from jail led by an angel or anything like that. What Paul seems to be pointing to is the power of God's Holy Spirit as the gospel is preached, convincing and imparting saving faith to the listeners. No doubt Paul preached and taught with heartfelt conviction. No doubt that power was seen in his earnestness as he, he, Timothy and Silas shared the good news. But he was the first to admit, when he said it to the Corinthians, uh, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence. So it wasn't like he was a good orator. He, He said he came only resolving to know that he would preach Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Paul's confidence, it seems, as he has the experience in Thessalonica, then Berea, then he's in Acts on his uh, in Athens on his own. You know, there've been riot move on quickly, then Athens on my own, and then turfed out of the hall of Tyrannus, and then to Corinth. He comes weak. He's not eloquent. He hasn't got the gift of the gap. But the power of the Holy Spirit is there as he preaches the gospel. Now that is miraculous when we see that actually the Thessalonians joyfully received this gospel, verse 6, For you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. Can you see that that 
is a massive miracle, isn't it? To receive the message with joy in suffering. I think that connects with us, doesn't it? Where we, we live at this time with uh, maybe low-level opposition or just apathy to the gospel. Where we think, uh, you know, where, where's the power? Where's the miracle here? Why, why can't we have more zing? But to actually receive this word now, on a Sunday in May, when things feel a bit mundane, when we feel a bit flat, when, uh, where, where's, where, where's it going to stick? Where's, where's the power and momentum here? To receive it with joy is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. To say, yes, Lord, this word is a word that we will stand on, that will shape me, not just today, but for the rest of their life and eternity. We need to be clear. We need to be clear that the Spirit is miraculously at work every time the Bible is open. The Spirit of God is at work through his word. There's no division between word and spirit. Whatever you might be experiencing, whatever your circumstances, when you hear and receive God's word today, you can be certain he is working on you powerfully and joyfully. And so our assurance, our confidence as Christians is rooted not in our choice of God, but in his choice of us. He uses the preaching of the gospel in the Spirit's power to draw us to himself. He does that each day. He does that as we open up the Bible individually, together in our life groups, in university CUs, with colleagues over a cup of coffee and a quick break. And when you think about it, some of us may be put off by that language of God choosing. I suppose, especially when we think about how choice works in our society, you, you think of being selected to represent your country at the Olympics is a huge honor, wouldn't it? Or being picked for a Premier League football team or, or something else, uh, that school sports team as well. It's an enormous privilege. Being picked for the job that you have, recognizing you came through as the number one candidate, is something to be pleased about. But in those examples, obviously, they rest on the abilities and skills of the person being chosen. Whereas God's choice is based purely on his love. He doesn't choose the best players. He doesn't choose the cleverest people, the best looking, the best behaved. It's free. It's undeserved. It's unearned. The Thessalonians didn't volunteer for conversion, and neither do we. We do nothing that impresses God, and yet he calls us. He draws near first. He draws near to us first. He comes and calls, and we willingly come with open hands and receive the gift, the eternal gift. It's his work. And what a joyful privilege that is, and what security that gives us. Secondly, we see the gospel's powerful advance in verses 7 to 8. I don't know about you, but I loved worked examples. I'm not great at giving them, but I really benefit from seeing them in action, those worked examples, whether it's cooking a meal and having all the pictures in front of me so that I can follow and see what's going on, or whether it's doing a bit of fitness and it's Joe Wicks. I know some find him annoying, but his videos are really good. You can just skip back and, you know, 10 seconds and really get that technique on the squat or whatever it is you're trying to do. 
Or if it's um, in the church context, church suite, our, uh, I don't know, it's like the Death Star of church administration, it feels like to me. You know, it does everything, but at some points feels like it's going to destroy you. I need uh, Dan, Jez, or Emily to patiently walk me through how to use it. That worked example. Well, Paul, Silas, and Tim, they were walking, talking, working examples of God's loving power. Verse 5b. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and the Lord. Isn't that a bold thing to say? You saw us up close and we didn't put you off. <laughs> you saw us up close. You could see the gospel at work. Paul didn't just preach, he lived the gospel. And we'll pick up on this next week as well in chapter 2. But the main thing is, the Thessalonians weren't simply hearing a message about God's love from a spirit-filled preacher. They also saw the message of God's love in his behavior, in the way the team worked together. Even in the short amount of time he had with them, there was a lasting impact that was made because of the way they lived together. Their love for God and their love for people was on display. And as the Thessalonians copied the model Paul set, they then became a model church, we're told, to all believers in the north and south of Greece. The gospel just spread. It's positively contagious. And not only did they love and welcome God's word in verse 6, they persevered with God's word, not with gritted teeth, but with joy, which meant the Lord's message rang out across the whole of Greece and beyond, we're told in verse 8. Here's a powerful advance of the gospel through a model church. Their witness was a combination of their changed behavior and the gospel message they shared. It wasn't one or the other, but both. And that phrasal verb rang out in verse 8. It's a compelling picture, isn't it? It's, it's like a, a peal of bells that's heard throughout a town or a city. It cuts through the noise of the traffic. It cuts through the hubbub of everyday life. That good news of Jesus rippling out, advancing across Greece through this model church, inspiring other believers to joyfully share Jesus, challenging skeptics to receive the kingdom of, of God, the forgiveness that Jesus brings. Uh, this week, I was really struck by an interview that I read in the Stewardship magazine. Stewardship help us with our giving. They help um, enable gospel ministry. And... Um, in the Stewardship Magazine share, there's an interview with Carl and Viv Palmer, who've moved away from secure jobs in London to settle in Chesterfield with a, a ministry running drop-in cafes, parenting advice, debt advice, uh, distributing school uniforms where they're needed. And, and Viv, it was her comment, she says, building relationships and loving people is so important. Not prejudging others, but listening well. You have to really love the people God loves. But you also have to lead with Jesus. Modeling to others how you put your life in his hands and showing what happens when you do that. In their contact with local councils and other agencies, they're clear the gospel is front and center. So Carl explains, we make sure people know that we are good, that we are good news people from the outset. He's clear it's Jesus who's transformed their lives. Carl said, people end up thinking that you are just a really great person and that Christianity can't be for them because they're not as good as you. That's what he wants to guard against. He doesn't want people thinking, we're just nice people. 
and that's our example. No, we're saved people. We're transformed. We're a work in progress. And you are called into that. It's a helpful reminder, a helpful illustration that the model church will always be a church that rings out the gospel message faithfully. People should be able to see the effect of the gospel on our lives. But they need to hear the gospel message too. Or else, as Carl points out, it will just be about morality. It will just be about earning God's good books. So, Paul didn't need to tell the Thessalonians to share the gospel. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't give an exhortation in chapter 1, look guys, can you try a little bit harder? Have you thought through your evangelism strategy? It's coming naturally. It's like writing a letter to tell someone to breathe. It's just there. That joyful rippling out. As if someone pulling a rope on a bell. And as you'd expect, it rings because it's attached to the bell. So those who know the Lord Jesus will, in a variety of ways, prayerfully work out how to share this gospel. So for Grace Church, let's think. I think that certainly calls us to definitely be prayerfully dependent in the way that we live out and share the gospel. I think, more honestly, it means we've got to hold each other to account not to get trapped worrying about what or how we're seen by others or whether other people think we are a model church. So let's not get distracted thinking that stuff through. It's like, what's our reputation? Uh, how do people think of us? Stuff like that. Uh, no, uh, leave that to one side. Concentrate on the main thing. The joy of the Lord. The power of his gospel message. That we'd be joyful even in suffering when things aren't going well. When it's hard. That we'd value people not as projects but as God-given image bearers in need of his loving rescue. And that in that space we would apply the gospel and share the gospel and love people. That we'd be generous with what God has given us to bless others. Because ultimately, our greatest need is to know the living God. That is what we should be consumed by. Everything else is noise. Because look at verses 9 to 10, where this chapter climaxes. It's the gospel in a nutshell. And this is the third point. It, we see here a genuine response to a great rescue, verses 9 to 10. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. So actually, other believers in Greece were telling Paul, who's in Corinth, oh, we've heard about the Thessalonians and what's gone on there, and this is what they've told us happened. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So this is the gospel report that the Greeks were saying about the Thessalonians. And we see clear repentance, don't we? Turning away a change of heart and mind that leads to new behavior. And I appreciate idolatry, that word idol, sounds such a strange concept in 2022. We think of a primitive wood statue or something engraven in stone. But idolatry is very much alive today. The New Testament merges idolatry with human desire. 
It's, it exercises a powerful magnetic attraction on the center of our being, our human heart, because it taps the craving, the yearning, the demanding desire to be our own God, to be the number one. You see, the Bible says we're all worshippers. Augustine put it uh, most succinctly when he said, we're lovers created to love, which is worship. We're created to be worshippers. But in our rejection of God, we set up other substitutes for that worship, for that love. It's that thing we live for, the thing we most value, the thing that would give us nightmares and cold sweats if it was taken away from us. It might be sport, it might be career, it might be family, it might be a relationship, it might be comfort, it might be approval, it might be identity. Tim Keller in his Gospel in Life book lists 20 different idols of our current culture that we struggle with. And I'm reading through it going, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> wow. The things that tap our heart and desire. The former sale in England rugby player, Jason Robinson, he honestly describes the moment he realized that he was filling his life, particularly chasing sporting success and drink and his own pleasure. He, he describes it as a picture that he had of himself on top of the world but then everything underneath him was crumbling, dissolving, breaking down. It was nothing. It couldn't bear the weight. And actually, it was a, a Christian colleague, a Christian player, who was praying for him, who then helped him understand that picture in the light of the gospel. These other things are your God, and they don't do it. You need the Lord Jesus. And praise the Lord, through that testimony, through the loving witness of his uh, colleague, uh, Jason Robinson and his family came to know Christ. You see, the gospel diagnosis is that our problem is that we are looking to something besides Jesus Christ for our happiness. So we need to repent, but we need to also rejoice. Repentance, again, it's that saying sorry to God. It's what we did at the start of the service. It's saying sorry. It's accepting Jesus' forgiveness. It's living constantly in that dependence, knowing it's once for all we're forgiven. But we need daily reminders. We need to daily return to that dependent forgiveness. It's rejecting the God substitutes that we love and turn to instead of God. It's rejecting that and turning to the true God. And we see faith in verse 10 clearly being based on Jesus' rescue, on the fact he is returning. He died on a cross to take our judgment for our sin in our place. He defeated death. He rose again. So that means sin is forgiven. And he gives us life with God in his family for eternity. He will return. The resurrection points to that. The work is finished in one sense, and yet it's only just begun in another, because he will return, and the new heavens and new earth is the kingdom we will be part of. He will return, and everyone will come face to face with God. And that's where we're given those hard words, that there is a coming wrath, there is a judgment this is God's settled, holy, perfectly just anger 
at our rejection of him. It is the moment when we realize those idols that we've given our lives to cannot rescue us. They are false. And God says, have them. That is hellish. For God to give us what we worship. Christian faith, therefore, is based objectively on all that Jesus is and what he has done. And a genuine response to this great rescue includes repentance and faith. The life of the Christian will always be repentance and faith. And the joyful, positive side of this is that we're saved out of judgment and a hollow life that is false into a place of joy into a place of service that really matters because it's to the one who holds everything together, the ultimate reality, the Lord God. So to enjoy life, to enjoy all the gifts the giver gives, is to live in a way that pleases him. And we'll see that as Paul applies it later in chapter 3 and 4 as to how we're to live that life out. It should make us consider what we're building our lives on today. What are you building on? For what purpose? To what end? Is it joy giving? Or is it crushing you? Is it, because it cannot take the weight of your expectations. Are you, brother and sister, resting in Jesus Christ? Are you rejoicing in what he's doing and what he has done for you? Paul's gratitude, Paul's confidence is ours here, that we know that when we look at Jesus, we have one who comes to us as a saviour, to rescue and to restore. One who in his love has chosen us and calls us to himself, not from a distance, but from the one who first came to us. Let's pray. Lord, only in your presence are fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, as Psalm 16 tells us. Yet here we are trying to find comfort and love in something else. This thing, Lord, which is in our hearts, which we are tempted by, is just a pleasure that will wear off soon. While your pleasure, your love, grows on and on forever. Father, would you smash the idols that we chase that can never give us the pleasure, joy, peace and security we can only find in you? And Father, through Jesus Christ, bring us the security of his love and the joy and rest of serving you all of our lives. Amen.